0: This is Define the Narrative Podcast with your host, Anne Argo. Welcome everyone to, I'm so excited to say, Season two of Define the Narrative podcast. I am just elated at the thought that just over 13 months ago, I put out episode one for season one. And so many of you listened and I'm so grateful for the folks that sat down and had conversations with me and let me interview them and we're going to do it again. So, I just encourage you if you haven't had a chance to listen to season one, go back. We've got all kinds of topics from daycare to dating. Um, There's an interview about this time last year that I did with my own 11 year old son that gives some insight into at least his perspective of being a child conceived with donor sperm and how he sees being in our family. And, and, just his perspective of things. We'll be sitting down again for our annual conversation next week. So if there are any questions or topics that you would like for me to broach with him, um, you can either send me a DM on Instagram or you can fill out the comment form and send me a message on the website, definethenarrative.us and I will do my darndest to see if I can get him to talk about it or answer that question. But without further ado, let's get this season kicked off. Episode one is a topic that if you live in the United States or abroad and you celebrate Thanksgiving or holidays or food activities are a big part of your life, and you struggle to provide things that your child likes or provide well-balanced meals and and food to your child, or sometimes what you think is good, they don't think is good, or vice versa, sometimes they think it's too good, um, then this is the episode for you, because I actually struggled before I even had my son, with a lot of anxiety uh, coming from a family with a very strong hereditary, both nature and nurture, um, I say that morbid obesity was in my family long before it was fashionable in the United States, and I say that tongue in cheek because it is a very unfortunate epidemic that we have. That being said, I dealt with it um, in my twenties but I knew that I didn't have a natural perception of eating and food. Um, In fact, to be honest, and I've done some thinking since my interview that I, I have some work to go back to that, you know, if I could just take a pill for all my nutrition and not have to eat, sometimes that would be the easiest thing. And that's not really, a good model when you are the only model at home for your child. And so a friend gave me a book that really became my Bible and was my saving grace where I was able to let go and trust. And the book is called Child of Mine by Ellen Sater. And she is the author of several books, And she has an institute that is a nonprofit devoted to educating adults, parents about the relationship that they have with food and how to teach their children and raise their children to have a good relationship and to have eating competence so that we can allow them to trust their own bodies to satiate with the nutrients and the foods that they crave for a healthy, um, happy existence. And so Carol Danaher sat down with me and really helped me break it down and explain the golden rule, which is the division of responsibility, and go through each stage and phase of life to understand what we might expect and what we will be dealing with. And then um, you can listen to my little meltdown about what puberty does when you think you've got it all figured out as a parent and that challenge, especially if puberty challenged your relationship with food personally, it can really challenge how you are raising a child in puberty. And I'm really grateful. It's, it's, it's a never-ending um, ebb and flow as we try to raise healthy children to adapt what we're teaching and supporting our children as they grow up to be the best that they can be. And so I hope that you find this interview as valuable as I did, and I hope that it sparks some um, sharing and some conversation about what it means to have nutrition in our homes in a healthy, happy way and to have a family table, even if it's two or if it's 20. So without further ado, I bring to you episode one.
1: Carol, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you. It's really great to be here with you, Anne.
1: I am so excited to actually start our season two with you because it is the first step in to find the narrative that that I call out, which is we have to tune into our inner voice despite a lot of external messaging and feelings and emotions and eating really is the metaphor for that
2: yes it it it, it really is and it plays out several times a day every day So it's really important to get it right.
1: Tell us what the Ellen Satter Institute is and how did you come to work there and what is your role?
2: The Ellen Satter Institute, we're not for profit. We're small, we're volunteer powered. Our mission is to really help people all over the world have a positive and trusting relationship with food. Ellen Satter, she is a clinical dietitian, a therapist, and she identified what is now considered the best practice feeding model, which is the Division of Responsibility in Feeding. This is it's a model where she recognized that feeding is, is it's really all about the relationship between the parent and child, and that the relationship, parent and child, have distinct, unique responsibilities. I came to it when I was a mom myself. I I heard her speak in my hometown of Palo Alto, and I'm a dietitian, so I'd been counseling people. The division of responsibility and feeding made so much sense. It pretty much cleared up any. Worry or anxiety that I had with my own kids, and then I continued to work with it to a pretty amazing extent in my work in public health. I began because I was working so closely with Ellen uh, in my work. Then I was I just joined the faculty and I'm on the board, so I'm I'm heavily involved, very committed, and I'm just so happy to. Help other people learn about this amazing way to feed and 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 for adults how to eat with our eating confidence model.
1: It really is a relationship which for our audience is a big topic. We always are investigating relationships and the role that relationships have in the families that we create and challenge it sometimes, the perception of. What relationships should be, I do believe that this audience is an open audience to think about how they're going to define the narrative of their relationship to food as a parent, as an individual, Mm -hmm. as a woman to their children. I myself come from a very long history of obesity. I was 400 pounds at one point. So for me, it's a very sensitive topic. And when I was pregnant, I was very concerned and adamant about not passing that on to my child. And I knew I was anxious about it because I know that I have a tendency to be controlling, which is what mm-hmm. can end up happening. And it backfires, right? Yeah. A friend of mine gave me this book. Her sister is a dietitian child of mine, I have to tell you, the best part is it is so simple, the golden rule. Mm -hmm. And when I would would mess up, meaning when I would make a move that I know was not the right thing, it was so simple to just
2: come back to that. Could you explain that to us? Sure, sure. So the golden rule is related to this um, principle of feeding being a relationship. The golden rule just defines the relationship, which is a division of responsibility. The parent's unique responsibilities are what when and where of feeding. The parent decides what food comes into the house, where eating occurs, and when eating occurs. The child's unique responsibilities are they are responsible for how much they eat and what they eat from what the parent provides. And key to this is the term relationship. If the parent doesn't do the parent's job, it makes it very hard for the child to do their jobs properly. And the lines of responsibilities can get crossed. Parents can take over for the child by forcing them to eat more or less than they want or making them eat some of everything on the plate. Well, that's when the lines of responsibility get crossed. And problems start then. And then the, the parent can also let the child take over some of the parent responsibilities by demanding to be fed, catered to with their food selection. And so it's a really great framework for assessing how feeding's going you know, am I doing my responsibilities and am I letting my child do, their responsibilities. It's a good visual. I mean, I can imagine it and I can think about sitting at a table with a child and imagining how that plays out. So it's kind of good to put it internally. Right.
1: And we're going to talk about the early stages and and Mm -hmm. feeding of of infants and newborns in a minute. For me, it really came into play once solid food and when I had a toddler and I really had to trust because I had to tell myself there's a certain part to my nature and nurture and a lot more Mm -hmm. of my nurture that I needed to trust an expert. In that, there is the idea of having family-style eating, which is offering, right, the what and the when you're going to have it. One example is, and it's funny because my sister and I actually, when we compare notes, she's like, I tell my daughter she must eat her broccoli before she has her dessert. And I'll never forget the first time my sister was visiting. And I want to say it was like a little chocolate muffin or whatever it was that was going to be the dessert. I put it all out there. And my son started with the dessert and I thought my sister was going to fall over on the floor. It works because, you know, you're controlling what it is that you can offer. And you know that whether they eat it first or last, that's what they have. Right. (laughs) And it's the same thing. Like for my child, it was about, you know, the carbs and the pasta and the rice and more rice, please more rice, please. Mm. And, and, you know, here's another tip and maybe you can share a little bit of some tips that people have offered. If you are strictly honest and you know, you made more pasta. (laughs) I remember talking to my friend that gave me the book and I'm like, I'm going to be lying if I tell him I don't have any more pasta and he's smart enough. He'll go in there and point to the pot. And I had to learn little phrases like, I'm sorry, I don't have any more to offer you. There's no more to offer for this meal. There's no more pasta. I can offer you this, this, and this, but there's no more pasta. So you're right. It really is something that you have to visualize and you do might need coaching to figure out, especially if you have a smarty pants on your hands, right? (laughs) How do you answer those tricky questions? Because- There is a tipping point that you have to not let your child get to because it does work, right? And your child might test the limit.
2: Well, children do test your limits. And I think the real test is on us. adult? And do we have the courage and the confidence to trust the child with their eating? And there are so many reasons to do this that are beneficial to the child.
1: It does require this leap of faith, as I Mm -hmm. mentioned, and especially for those of us, you know, and I can just imagine not not to belittle that I I know that, you know, eating disorders and, and issues with food and relationship with food is increased regardless of gender. But historically, women, It's a go-to trigger for women. Um, So when it comes to eating and nutrition, what evidence of the competency models and what assurance do you give parents to trust?
2: There are different types of evidence. There is a lot of clinical evidence of individuals who are using the model of this. Division of responsibility and feeding. I'll treat eating competence separately. I'll can bring that in, but let's talk about kids for now, if that's okay. We know from clinicians, it's career changing for them to work with these models because they have something that, that, that really applies to really anybody. It doesn't matter your income or your culture. The, the division of responsibility supports the child's mother nature endowed drives. As humans, we have hunger and satiety cues. We seek out pleasure. We love social connection and we are omnivores. I mean, all, because that helps us or prom, 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 prompts us to eat a varied diet and a varied diet helps us survive. And so does eating enough and it helps helps us survive. Imagine a model that can support the child in a very deep way versus very academic, oh, you need to have this many, you know, orange vegetables and green vegetables and half your plate should be vegetables. That ignores those drives. I mean, those are healthy. I mean, it's healthy. It's good nutrition. So that advice is good nutrition, but it is not helpful nutrition education for most people. The other proof of this works is we have a, we now have valid, a validated survey that measures parent adherence to the division of responsibility. And so researchers are beginning to use it in their research. And what we find is that. For parents who follow the division of responsibility, their children are at lower nutrition risk and there's a dose response. The more they adhere to division of responsibility, the lower the child's nutritional risk, the less pressure and restriction the parent provides. Parents who follow division of responsibility tend to be lower, have lower stress, they sleep better. It's amazing. It's really interesting. It's overall, you know, health and wellness is what, what it provides. So just a variety of different, of different ways to acknowledge that. That it is effective and it is proper. It's also considered best practice. It's you know widely used. We have different. We have governments who are that we advise to help them have consistent messaging.
1: It really does take the weight off your shoulders. It does help you sleep a little better, especially when you see it working and you go to the pediatrician. Mm-hmm. And the pediatrician is matching up to what you're saying. So I just want to get like to the ground for a minute for a real realistic look at it. What I got from it with a toddler was we're going to do family style. And I needed to make sure that I was preparing new foods in different ways and multiple times and allowing him to choose not to eat it if he didn't want to and making sure this was a hard one that over a couple of days time, I was, I was making sure that I had something in there that would make it so that, okay, fine. He eats nothing but pasta for two days, but eventually he will be hungry enough and that that's okay. You're not, you're not starving your child. It's a choice that they're making. Mm -hmm. And that was very helpful. Again, this idea that you lay it all out and you let them pick. And it really was fun because he wanted to have his own kitchen to start cooking he got to handle the utensils from the bowls in the middle of the table and choose he started eating caesar salad which a green vegetable we did it as a family when i had my family visiting and we hadn't even sat down to the table and i honestly think it's because he wanted the talk <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, But it also allows for this, again, not having the control of telling your child, eat what's on your plate. It's not telling your child that you have to eat this because everyone else is eating. But the model of the sit down, which my mother was very big. And I have to say, I struggle with the family dinner for various reasons. But I love it because it gives you, as you said, a chance to sit down, be social. But you're also modeling trying different foods. So the different people that you eat with, I mean, he eats radishes, not because I eat radishes, but because he saw someone else eat radishes. For the the, the woman that's looking at this now, whether they have a toddler or toddlers or, or they're, they're not there yet, it really is that simple that you're offering the variety Giving multiple opportunities and then trusting your child's body to do its thing—is that a yes. fair summary?
2: Yes, it is. It is. It helps if you understand what normal eating is at the different developmental stages. For a toddler, parents need to understand that they are their mission in life is to become an independent person from their parents. From their parents, and this is why you know every word is no. Or the answer to every question is no. And then they'll tell you what they're going to do. And the growth is slowed. So they're not, they're not it's not like the first two years of life when growth, the rate of growth is pretty fast. So their appetite's not that great. And they definitely don't want to do what you want them to do with division of responsibility. And this is I'm really just recapping what you said. Now is that the parent does their job of providing food and there should always be something on the table that the child will eat. So it sounds like pasta is your son's go-to. It could be bread, it could be tortillas, it, it doesn't matter. Whatever the menu is, one of those menu items um, the child has to like. And you would do this if you had adults for company, right? You wouldn't serve them a meal that everybody hated the food. So that's just good practice for meal time. And then the child decides from what's offered how much to eat. I would say you do want to allow the child to eat as much as they want of that of that food. If that special food that you know they'll like is something like cheese sticks and it doesn't quite go with the menu, you need to serve cheese sticks and offer them to everybody and they can take them or not. It it shouldn't be presented as, okay, I know you don't like these foods. Here's your cheese sticks. Because that's a message to the child that you don't expect them to learn to eat the foods. So no catering, but you do offer. And then if it's an an expensive food, say chicken's expensive and you don't want to have an all you can eat chicken meal, then you can say, sorry, it's just with one. One chicken leg for all of us, but there's enough of, you know, whatever else. So you can, you know, you have to navigate a lot of different decisions. I mean, I've been at tables where the toddler picks the butter off her bread and has a butter meal and that's it. <laughs> You know, it's just like, okay, you know, she doesn't do that every day. She might do it several days in a row. You know, her body's craving fat. And you don't know as an adult what the internal drives are for that child.
1: Could be vitamin D, right? And they, maybe they're not <laughs> a milk drinker. You 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 brought up another good point that I wanted to highlight. And again, just thinking about the practicality of this, the idea of family style. I did in the family dish of what I knew that he would eat to the point that he would make himself sick. I had to think about how many portions were going to be there and I would let him empty the bowl. Mm -hmm. And when it was empty, as you said, it was, I'm sorry, there's no more for this meal. And if he would go and say, but you have more in the kitchen, I'd say, I'm sorry, that's for another meal. But the point is for me, once I decided that I was going to follow the golden rule and I myself understood what it entailed. And I started using the frames and I did. I had to practice what I was going to say and how it was going to go because he is smart. Once I did that, the rule and the control did not lie with me and he knew it. And I began to be a partner with him. Mm -hmm. And that for me is huge relief and it expands to other parts of parenting. But when you feel the pressure of having to be the rulemaker and the implementer, especially when there's families that have more than one parent talk about, oh, well, this person makes the rules and this person is your friend, you know, that helps you adhere to the rules. When you are both of those roles, the offering to reading this book and embracing this platform is that you don't have to be the rule maker. It's this is the rule and you can actually be empathetic. So when the toddler is throwing a temper tantrum that there's no more pasta or no more rice and they want it, you don't have to feel the guilt of changing the rules. You can say, you know what? I know that really is. That's hard. I know you love it. There'll be more at the next meal. Is there something else you want here? But you also brought up the cheese and this was huge. And I know that there's going to be listeners right now that are just going to cringe when they say it. There's one menu. There's the family menu and what is prepared is on the table. You're not a short order cook and everybody gets a different meal every single time, which is why if cheese is going to be the go-to, you need to put it on the table even if nobody else is going to eat it so that you're not making them feel like they're catered to.
2: Yeah, there is one meal. Regarding the the. Pub, I would suggest every once in a while, you let a child eat as much pasta, whatever that favorite food is. Let them let them eat as much as they want. If you can afford that, right? It's really good for children to know what their limits are. And we treat dessert the same way. Usually it's just one serving of dessert, but occasionally at snack time, put the package of cookies out on the tray and let them have as many as they want. What it does is it... it removes kind of that aura of, oh, this is a special food or for pasta, you know, of always longing for more. You don't want your child to always to long for more. You want your child to feel comfortable knowing that when he, you know, encounters pasta, he can manage it. So I would suggest that every once in a while, you just make it available to him and and do it frequently enough. So it's not, it's not a big deal. And then I think that will, uh, that will help him long-term.
1: You're right. We would do it when we go out. Like that was in my mind. I knew I like, how can I do it? And so when we would go somewhere else or we would go out and every once in a while, I would like, I could tell when he was really hungry mm-hmm. and growth spurts are real. And you're right. You're absolutely right. And I do do it with sweets as well, especially Halloween. Eat, yeah. eat it all. Eat, eat the whole bucket. You have a whole jack-o'-lantern full of candy. Eat it all and see, see what you want. And honestly, you're right because the satisfaction that one event is not going to kill him, But forbidding oh. that they're going to remember and they're going to constantly be trying to figure out which is where you start with the sneaking, right?
2: Mm -hmm. That's right.
1: For me, I came to this because of my own fear and my own experience with compulsive overeating and my fear of my child being an overeater. Could be that you have Picky eaters, right? Right. How does this work on the flip side, where you offer all of these things, and no matter what you offer, they're they're the opposite of wanting it all, but yeah. they don't want anything.
2: Yeah, and they're both. I mean, both extremes are very challenging for parents. With the picky eater, for all children, I think you have to realize that the meal, a, a meal time, the meal time is the classroom for learning how to eat, and if the classroom is pleasant, children learn better, and that's true at mealtimes. To. For the picky eater, a pleasant mealtime where they enjoy being at the table with, with the parents and even though they just pick the butter off the bread for four nights in a row, if that mealtime is pleasant, that picky eater will want to come back to the table. That process of observing the parent and learning and kind of being desensitized over time, that's all going to happen. And so what you what, and also you need to understand pickiness is natural. Most kids eat just about anything until they're almost two and then it wanes. And picky eating is temporary. They're not going to be there forever. If you label your child as picky, if you start, if some parents will say, oh, you don't like that, you know, you don't have to eat it. The more you talk about what they don't like and the fact that they're picky, the more they will incorporate that into who they are. And you don't want that. So you want to not consider it picky. This is just a normal process that children go through. It could take five years before they totally get out of it. 11 is pretty reliable for most kids. <laughs> I mean, it's really long. They, they gradually add more foods in. But it, it's variable. Give your child the impression that you have confidence that someday your child will learn to like all those foods. You don't tell the child that, but you, your actions show that. Hold on. I mean, really, you have to hold on to your courage. Also, you want to make sure you're, they're not grazing in between meals and snacks, because grazing usually consists of the food that they, that they love to eat, right? And parents, I think, today are more flexible on letting children eat in between scheduled meals and snacks. I see it a lot. So that parent just has to acknowledge that that's going to impact the appetite at dinner. A picky eater can really stay picky because they've, they've been able to eat in other in other times. Look at the whole picture of, of the day and eating. See if you can reduce some of that random eating. It's not that your child will instantly eat a better dinner, but you're making it more capable and more able to learn to eat.
1: I think the most helpful thing as a toddler for that was at his daycare, they followed it. And so for me, we adopted the same schedule, the same pattern, three meals and two snacks. Sometimes there was a third snack right before bed, but it was usually like a yogurt or a cheese. So I I could tell there was a craving and that was very helpful. I'm going to move to a very vulnerable spot. My child is in a matter of hours going to turn 11 and he has been in puberty for almost 24 months mm-hmm. at 5 foot 3 and i was okay with the fact mm-hmm. that caesar romaine lettuce and broccoli was all we had we have hit a brick wall and i have fallen from grace in the way i handle it and i'm i'm going to ask if maybe you'll give some advice mm-hmm. his choices are chicken nuggets mm-hmm if he can eat chicken nuggets all day, every day, and that's fine. And I try to offer different things. And what the rut is that I have found myself is I love finding different things. And I tell him, that's okay. You don't want it today. Another time. I've offered so much food that has gone to waste because it is the two of us. And for women who are creating a family of their own, it might just be two, or maybe they have more than one child. It's not that there's other people that are going to eat the leftovers. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest, I... I, I stopped buying things that I knew for the last eight years I've been offering and he hasn't eaten it, although you did just say 11. And I recognize that I'm not helping the situation because I did say it to him one day. I said, I'm very frustrated. I said, I don't want to tell you what to eat. And I said, but I don't know what to do because you won't even try. It's the cost of the food and my frustration of, and I again, it's anxiety. Every phase brings up anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's a trigger. Mm-hmm. Puberty is where I crossed over and it really became... Heavy. So when you move into kind of those middle ages, knowing that even the pediatrician said, this is the hot Cheetos that they're going to get at school, you know, I, I packed his lunch. And so it's that idea of, I guess, the parental fear. How would you circle me back to the golden rule on this one? And mm-hmm. what advice do you give? For folks that may not have the budget to have food that they don't use up in offering the options to their child.
2: Well, I appreciate you being so real because it is real when you're with your child and it's just the two of you. And so the easy part is the budgeting that um, I relied a lot on frozen vegetables, frozen fruit. You could take a little bit out and then refreeze it. I would uh, prepare something but only cook part of it. Just plan menus so that I knew I could could freeze it again or freeze it for for part of it. I think you can go online and get lots of, of tips as well. Feeding children, there is definitely waste and you don't want to eat their waste because you have your own meal and that's not a being a garbage disposal for your child it's not a good way to respect yourself there has to be some acceptance of food waste but i think by planning the types of food you serve during these periods could help. It's really so individual and it's a whole topic in itself. I would go online because there's a lot of resources for parents on quick and easy meals and where you could, you know, cook a portion and a lot of people go through this. You've got to expect some waste. It's just the way it is. Oh, I appreciate
1: Uh, that. I think that that's a really honest answer. And in our world of culture and our world is trying to reduce waste and That's affirming for parents Mm -hmm. is, you know, there's going to be waste and that's okay. And I really do a back to basics approach, right? And also just realizing that I don't have to have everything, you know, fresh and organic, although I do try. Offering it is better. Than not offering it unless it's perfect. And you're right. I I do. I think it is just going back to basics and letting go. And I'll tell you the other part as well that I learned, you've got to give all of the things that are healthy, which for kids, the pediatrician says, if he doesn't have 18 to 24 bumps, bruises, and scrapes at any one time, he's not playing outside enough. And that's what he continues to say is increase the activity because there is no way that telling an 11 year old what to eat and what not to eat. And I, you know, should, listen because i know that that's what happened to me although hormones do play a role into the cravings for foods another part to balance that and what would you say about how puberty and hormones might impact diet and how it might challenge adolescents and in a way that it may bother them but they don't know what to do about it
2: yeah it's, a, it's one of those periods of, of being unsettled both physically and emotionally mentally uh, So I would say first, um, because you're struggling with your um, your son on on what he's eating. Generally, you know, in early childhood, when children are still learning, they don't they only have a few lists, uh, a few items of food on their list of liked items that they can think of. You don't involve them in menu planning. So as a child ages. You certainly should start involving them um, and you can give them parameters like, okay, a meal has to have some protein, has to have a vegetable, has to have a starch. So here's what I'm thinking. What do you, you know, and we have to have variety. So give them the parameters and then let them help you. And that empowers them. And yes, you should have the chicken nugget meal once a week or you know, whatever you decide, twice a week, maybe. But he has to also take responsibility for, you know, these rules of... Um, of menu planning and that's good for him I would say that um, pretty soon he's going to his growth is going to increase a lot he's going to sleep more and he'll be really hungry my son at that time gained a lot of weight he started drinking soda he was he was just he he was changing and I didn't know what was going to be normal for him what was just this process of puberty and so uh, for parents who are seeing these changes, I'm going to give you four qualities that you can assess. To And if your child has these four qualities, don't worry. One is, can your child go by feelings of hunger and satiety? And for that, with my own son, I would look at him eating you know, a ton. And then he'd leave food on his plate. He, so he knew when he was done. He didn't have to keep So that was one. Some days he'd eat a lot, sometimes a lot more. And that variety was reassuring to me, that variety in in quantity. But mostly he ate a lot, but he had a stopping point. Does he feel good about eating? And if your child feels good about eating, that is golden. That is so great because if you feel guilt and food is a really bad combination leads to body dissatisfaction. So when I saw that, that really made me happy. And that was reassuring. And can he learn to like unfamiliar food? And for my son, that was not a problem. For your son, it looks like it is. For someone who is really restricted, if for say you, if for example, if you involve him in menu planning, and he's okay with Planning in a vegetable, even though he knows he doesn't like it into the menu, that's progress, right? He's not saying, you know, So, so the progress can be really little. It could be as little as, yeah, that's fine if we have that on the menu. I just don't have to eat it. If it was something more crazy, you know, or more difficult before. The fourth quality is that the child enjoys being at the family table and that is enormous. And so, you know, four qualities. And so I looked at these qualities and found that my son had each of those. And then I just let it all go. I didn't worry. I continued meals and, you know, all of our habits, but I didn't worry about him. I mean, a lot of adults don't have all those qualities. And, you know, I want to acknowledge that. So it's not automatic. But if your child does, um, stop worrying. You're doing a good job. And the child is going to be fine. And your child will grow up loving their body. You give them a chance to do that. You're not harming that. And that's so important.
1: You know, raising a child, it takes a while. I feel like between, say, six and now, we coasted. I feel like we reaped the rewards Mm -hmm. of what I did early on. Mm -hmm. And what I hear you saying is, is I just need to go back to what I did with the beginning and circle back because with the busy lives that we have, and, you know, if you're a working only parent, the day gets by quickly and sitting at the table, especially with the pandemic, my table was my desk. So I hear you saying that we all need to go back to basics and make that time. You mentioned something else too, is that relationship that we all have with food ourselves. There is a checklist for a competent eater as an adult as well, right? Right. And you have a link that we'll add in to a booklet called Feeding Yourself with Love and Good Send. It's a self-assessment and a step-by-step guide for learning to eat.
2: Right. So um, the qualities, those four qualities that I mentioned for a child, those correlate very closely to what the qualities of eating competence are in, a, in an adult. And so in the, I think the biggest change is that uh, instead of enjoying family meal times for the adult, that would be that you you are reliable of making sure you get fed, meaning all of the planning you plan ahead, you have regular meals that comes in in there. Yeah. The booklet is, I think it's $2 in PDF, $5 otherwise, but uh, it, it really gives the adult permission to eat. So there's an assessment on how you feel now, not only, not really about what you're eating, but how you feel about your eating. And, um, it really aims to help adults eat the food they enjoy, give themselves per- permission to do that, to, to, to eat in an orderly manner uh, with routine and some structure around it, to pay attention to their eating. It's again, it's all it's using our intrinsic drives um, or reconnecting with them because an adult we can lose track of those um, basic human drives. It's a fabulous book. It's a little shocking to read. You know, you'll be like, whoa, (laughs) it's because it's, it's, it's so blatantly honest, Uh, but it's, it's fabulous.
1: I appreciate that because I think in talking to my friends who really never really thought about nutrition, they've just, it's been something that has not been a challenge one way or the other. And so they never really thought about it. If you're going to be a parent, this is a topic and you need to get in touch with, your competence as an eater and your responsibility as a parent in this relationship to the DOR, right?
2: Yes, yes. In fact, we've had um, researchers who work in eating disorders work with parents to gain eating competence and apply division of responsibility in their own child because parents who have been had eating disorders or who have them don't want their child to be in that position. And so these are two models that are the division of responsibility and eating competence that are definitely used by therapists and researchers. So
1: I jumped from toddler to, to puberty, but I want to circle back holistically. And could you fill in the gaps of how does the DOR change during the ages and stages of feeding?
2: The division of responsibility is developmental stage-based in infancy for the newborn, the parents only resp- is responsible for what is fed, breast milk or formula. And the infant is in charge of everything else, how much they're going to, to take from that milk feeding and when. And that's called feeding on demand. Uh, as the child, as the baby gets older and st- begins to start solids, the adult is still responsible for what is served. They begin to s- schedule those meal times, some meal solid food meals as the intervals between feeding you know expand and and it gets a little more significant Uh, and then the child is always responsible for how much they choose to eat and what uh, from what the parents served so there's the transition there's the infant one the transitionary um, division of responsibility and then the division of responsibility through the teen years which is the what, when, and where for the parents and how much and whether. So the child's responsibilities never change. In infancy, they just, you know, they make the decision or to win.
1: You mentioned something, and again, at reflecting on my experience, and, and a good pediatrician and nutritionist is always a really great team to have. And knowing, looking back on my child's development, that he ended up having actually apraxia and had some sensory Mm. issues, something clicked what you said about the competence in a newborn because he would take the bottle until he threw up and we would have to thicken it. And, and, and that was such a fearful thing for me, but it just, it, I thought of it right now when you said it is, and I don't know that it would have been diagnosed as a newborn, but Mm -hmm. when he was a toddler, he did stuff and chug to the point that he would choke himself when does the parent know something's not working with the division of responsibility or the competence of the eating of the child? And how do they know when to get help and what, where do they start and what help might they need?
2: I would first do a self-check, self-assessment. Okay, what am I doing? How, how well am I doing? How do I feel about how I'm doing? And even if you're doing everything according to the division of responsibility, if you are stressed out a lot, get some help. I mean, you know, you have to, t- <laughs> it's worth it to take care of yourself. But if you, you know, if you see that, okay, this is just too hard for me. My child is, my child is really challenging me. I'm not sure if I'm feeding him in the way that's best for him. Get it, get a, an assessment. I mean, I am of course, positively biased towards division of responsibility. So I would want a therapist who is really, really knew that. Also, I will mention that, Ellen Satter Institute. Many of our faculty do coaching. It's a paid. It's paid. They have. They will do a very careful assessment of the child of your feeding. You'll take a video of meal times because that's really informative. And then you'll work together um, to reinstitute, correct what whatever needs correcting, if anything, and then work forward. And that's been life changing for a lot of families, but do get help. And, and you can start with, you know, with some reading that might help as well. But one of the things I would do too, especially in early childhood is to make sure you are interpreting your child's cues well, because it can, they can be really subtle and they change frequently. And so what do you, what's the difference between a baby who's full and a baby who just needs to suck? Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you know? What, what's the difference? But there is a difference. There'll be there'll be some very subtle, or maybe an obvious marker, but probably very subtle. And so you've got to be the detective.
1: And also for for parents that are at the beginning or not even starting the journey, it is a wave. Growth spurts are absolutely mind boggling, and you will think that everything about division of responsibility has gone out the window but you made a good point, which is be an observer first, be curious because one episode of an eating behavior that is not familiar to you and you don't understand the instinct to want to correct it or redirect it. Isn't the first line of action. It's, seeking to understand what it is that you're observing, or even to know that you need to just observe and see what happens, right?
2: Yes. Yes. Reflect first.
1: And I cannot tell you that child of mine, it is my Bible when it comes to family nutrition. Mm -hmm. And I clearly uh, need to go back to it. It is a solace for me and I would highly recommend it to anyone as a first read. However, there are many publications from Ellen and the Institute what would you recommend as a next read after Child of Mine?
2: Um, how to Get Your Kid to Eat, but Not Too Much. And that'll take you from, um, you know, toddler, older baby through early school years. Um, and that's all about making that classroom that's the family meal enjoyable and how to do it. I really like that book. If you have a teenager, though, great, great book on on teenage dynamics and preteen child weight helping without harming and ellen wrote the book to address all of the you know this childhood obesity epidemic that was seen and all of the and to address give an alternative to some of the really which she viewed as as really uh un, unhelpful i'll i'll say that uh ways to treat that which were basically teaching the child to diet but whether your child is over is it, it may not be a weight issue at all but it It talks about teens and the psychology and, and what they need and how you can help them grow to be, you know, good, competent eaters. So I wouldn't let the the title deter you. Um, And it'd probably be a great book for you to, to have given that your child's at that age. He is
1: absolutely. And I'm glad that she really is hitting on that because, you know, one of the things that recently we, we went, we went to Europe um, in the spring, he's mentioned it before, that he'll just call it out which was a little affirming that what we're doing here at home is a good thing because he'll see a billboard or he'll see an advertisement for fast food he he has his tacos that he likes or he likes his his cheeseburger it all has a place but you mentioned it before the idea of the grazing and i noticed in europe that's not the case everywhere we go here there's always concessions whether it's beverage or food the movies and we went to legoland in denmark and there were not people walking around having food. There were people who were going to have their meal at the little restaurant, but people do not graze as they move through life. And it's a cultural thing.
2: It is. And it's it's a huge challenge for parents. It really is. And so, you know, I mentioned that, you know, that's starting to be incorporated in our family homes. And you really have to, you know, think about that as as part of the nutrient intake. It's not just a whatever, it doesn't count, but it does count. And, and it is going to impact their behavior later in the day. Humans are not, uh, our digestion is everything. Physiologically, we are not meant to eat constantly. And so it is, it is important from a health aspect. And there's, again, good research on this. Scheduled regular meals are healthier in a lot of different ways.
1: Also, finding that balance of the culture of your family and the culture that you want to have for your child and how to reconcile it. For women who are creating their own family, one of the things that we have to think about is the fact that we get to make whatever traditions we want because it's our family. And this is an opportunity to make those. Shared eating and meal times—a tradition—to uh, remake it in whatever way we want. And I will definitely check out that book. The institute has a plethora of resources, and it's not just the books. What other resources are there, and what suggestions would you make for our listeners?
2: Our website is—it's prim- fairly really educational. There's a lot of free information on there, and. And for that, you can just search, um, you know, how to feed that's one of the tabs and there's all kinds of inf- pieces of information there. Uh, we do have a shop and in that there are, I've done several parent webinars. I've done a starting solids. It's three parts and 20 minute segments um, for how to start uh, solid foods, how to assess that the child's ready. It takes you from birth to the first or six months to the first year, first birthday. And then there are um, two others that help with the transition of starting solids and and um, and then family meal times. And then for the uh, for two and beyond, it's the ABCs of child feeding, and that goes through a lot of pro you know really detailed problem solving um, on some on um, some of the common feeding issues and and again, tips on family meals. So those are those are but I think they're good they get a good reviews. So so yeah, explore the website. It's, it's a good, it's a good place. And then consider, you know, you can also consider the um, coaching with uh, an ESI coach.
1: And you can always reach out and ask questions. You're very responsive and get back. Yes. To, to anyone that inquires. Carol Danaher, thank you so much for joining us on Define the Narrative podcast. Nutrition is not easy, and it is something that all parents need to pay attention to, whether you realize it or not. And you have a great mission that you are supporting. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you, Anne. It's, uh, your questions have been so interesting and relevant, and I appreciate a chance to talk with you. See what I mean?
0: I just feel so much better listening to it again. Uh, Carol is just amazing. And I definitely am going to be reading over my vacation, the next book. And I am interested to know what comes to mind for you. I hope that you will, in whatever format you participate in, Facebook, Instagram, let us know on the website what you're what you're thinking and and what else you're wondering and if you have any questions because it does work i have done it and it's not a one and done thing it's a it's a constant as parenting is i wish you a happy healthy joyous prosperous new year and look forward to having you join us for episode two of season two of define the narrative podcast enjoy this is define the narrative podcast with your host Ann argo